0: Welcome to After Hour, a podcast where a journalist retains a lawyer to solve societal problems. Because sometimes knowing why isn't good enough. We need to know what we can do. Sometimes we need more than truth. We need hope. I'm Jane Steele, your host and investigative journalist here with Joseph, the managing partner of Sang and Associates. Hi, Joseph. Hi, Jane. Thanks so much for being willing to talk with me again.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So our case today revolves around child labor, which is essentially child slavery, and it's interesting because it actually takes place not far from from where we're doing this right now. It took place in Irvine, so a few minutes down the road, for those who don't know, it's in Southern California, very close to where I actually grew up. Mm-hmm. Essentially, a 12-year-old girl who was from Egypt was hidden in this family home and kept as their domestic servant. The case is the United States versus Abdel Nasser Yusuf Ibrahim. This was an Irvine couple who did plead guilty to enslaving this 12-year-old girl. Her name is Shima Hall, and they kept her in their garage for two years, forcing her to work as their domestic servant for a family of seven, so themselves and their five children. The couple's names are Abdel Nasser Eid Yusuf Ibrahim, he was 44 at the time, and his wife Amal Ahmed Ewis Abd Madalib, who was 41. So these were the two that ended up being charged. Basically, the backstory to this is that two of the girl's older sisters had worked in this family's home back in Egypt before they moved to Irvine in 2000. The husband caught one of the sisters stealing, and so he threatened to have her charged with theft. Unless the girl's parents agreed to send their youngest daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, to work for his family as a maid when they moved to the U.S. The girl's parents actually agreed to this, and they signed a document offering her for what was basically a a 10-year sponsorship with the family in exchange for about $30 a month. So, essentially nothing. But then they also arranged for a third party to obtain a visa for her so she could travel to the U.S., the the family kept her basically in squalid condition. She lived in their garage. They hid her from immigration. She didn't go to school. They obviously kept her away from police officials or anyone who would maybe question why she was there. And her whole role of being in the United States was to serve this family as their domestic servant. She would help the youngest kids get ready for school. You can imagine she's 10, helping these young kids getting ready for school. She'd wash their clothes, clean the house, prepare food. They really didn't pay her and they would threaten her with physical violence. They'd say, your sister will be arrested in Egypt if you don't behave. And also, if you ever leave the house, the police will arrest you. So they would threaten her. Eventually there was an anonymous tip and the girl was rescued in 2002. So she was held from August 2000 until April 9th 2002. The couple honestly got a really weak sentence in my opinion. The husband got three years in prison and the wife only got 22 months until she was deported back to Egypt. They did give her about $152,000 in restitution and back wages. And she actually went on to live with a foster family here in Southern California. She went to a public high school and did receive a green card granting her permanent residency. So positives and negatives to the to the resolution of this case, but it did kind of reveal an illegal practice in Egypt but a common one where children from poorer families are sent to work for wealthier families. The servants are actually known as Kadama, and they usually are 9 years old to 18 years old, and they sleep in the kitchen, and this is customary. But I found that a professor of Islamic and Middle Eastern law at UCLA School of Law, his name is Khaled Abu El-Fald, actually said that you know a, a vast majority of Middle Eastern immigrants they know that this is not an acceptable practice here in the West like this family they really weren't ignorant you know it wasn't just oh well this is how we do it back home and now we're doing it here and let's just try to make it work you know he he basically came out and said this is highly unusual and most likely the family would have known other Egyptian families and so they were in a circle where they knew what they were doing was a crime. Child labor globally is a huge issue, so it's not obviously just in the United States, and it looks different in every country, but an estimated 218 million children as young as five years old are employed. And of that, at least 152 million of them are in forced child labor. And almost half of these child laborers are between the ages of 5 and 11, so they're really, really young. And with a lot of other crimes like this that that we've even talked about on this podcast, the census data probably, in almost every circumstance, (laughs) lowballs what is actually going on. So we take these numbers for massive, 218, 152, it's probably more than that. But if these 218 million child laborers constituted their own country, they would actually be the fifth largest country in the world exceeded only by China, India, US, and Indonesia. So this is a massive, rate. this is a massive amount of children. And when you think a country populated by children, and these are not just any children, these are children in forced labor situations. And there's a, a ton of risks associated with it. Thankfully, this girl, she was a domestic servant in Irvine and did suffer some some physical abuse, but what we see globally makes this look like very little. And that's really sad. I have a couple examples. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, 40% of Artisanal mine workers are children. And I mean, we see so much go wrong. Even with adults working in in hazardous situations, there are injuries and there are risks. But you can imagine if it's a five-year-old child, the risks are exponentially higher. And so we see children falling down the shafts or being trapped in when a tunnel collapses or drowning And children report seeing other children die on the job. So highly, highly traumatic, highly unsafe. They develop medical conditions like persistent coughs. They are injured. Girls report infections, working waist deep in water. It's a really, really lethal situation to be working in. Another really common place or sector where we see child laborers are tobacco farms. And this is Zimbabwe, Indonesia, and the U.S which I thought was interesting because this is where we tie it back in to to where we are now. We're in these agricultural situations, children are exposed to nicotine, toxic pesticides. Children will develop illnesses like nausea, vomiting, symptoms like loss of appetite, headaches, dizziness, everything you would imagine when you're being exposed to toxic chemicals. But the interesting thing is, from my research, and maybe you can add more to this, is that at least... As of 2018, when NPR did a special series called Here and Now, it's still legal in the U.S. for children as young as 12 years old to work on tobacco farms. The one caveat or the one thing they need is parental permission. What's interesting is that there are no age limitations for children who work on small family-owned farms. And the reason for that, I believe, is because... It's It becomes such a gray area between family chores and child labor. So there's no age limitations for children in the U.S. in that condition. But even so, 2018, we do see reports of kids as young as seven working during the picking season in North Carolina on these tobacco farms, which are almost held in esteem as you know a legacy job or the family's tradition. But it's exposing these children to really intense medical medical risks. And obviously in the U.S., labor trafficking victims do face really high rates of exploitation, which, you know, we can't be too surprised at that. They're paid less than minimum wage, less than promised. Wage theft and illegal deductions are really common. But like we've talked about before in other cases and this one, employers will often control their housing, control their transportation, control their food. And so that's difficult for an adult. But you can imagine you know, a 5, 10, 12-year-old girl in these conditions, she's basically helpless if she's controlled by these adults who also control her food and housing and transportation and, and everything. And so it really is a kind of slavery, and people see that. People recognize that. A farmer who was interviewed said that they are, like, these are still kids, and they have the right to be educated, but they're brought to these places to work and it's not even the child who gets the money it's the boss who takes the money so it's not even like the child is making an income for their family or saving for an education or for their future it's essentially free labor free child labor and what makes it so difficult that that I found and makes the eradication of child labor so so challenging is that its roots are embedded in poverty Poverty is something that has always been with us and that is not in a five-year plan to We're going to eliminate all poverty forever globally. And so it's it's almost foolish, right, to say, you know, here's my policy pro- proposal, let's just get rid of poverty and in so doing we'll get rid of the need for child labor because that's that's the whole reason why this particular girl found herself in this situation was because her family was impoverished and so she was essentially sold or contracted to work with this family like her sisters. It came from an impoverished family situation and a desperate situation and not only that but this is my own my own theory is that I feel like even more so than some of the other topics we discuss the roots are also not only in poverty but in apathy in this sort of cultural apathy because we see this in agriculture and we see it in in other sectors like domestic servants or maids but it's also in industries like the chocolate industry which is a global industry or fast fashion these are these are industries that are really known it's not it's no secret to know that they're problematic and that the pipeline is not clean it's not pure and even when they come under pressure even when You know, the fast fashion industry comes under pressure, they'll put out statements, you know, like, oh, we're trying our best, like, this is what we stand for, and they're all really pretty, but there's not enough economic pressure or even social pressure to say, you know what, I'm not going to buy that piece of clothing that's $3, or I'm not going to buy that bar of chocolate because there's a high likelihood that child labor produced this product. We're not doing that, and we don't see that as a culture, even. Even here in the US, we're the largest consumers, actually, of these products, even though we might take a step back and say, child labor, child slavery is clearly wrong. I clearly stand against it. I see the abuses, but when it comes to what I do with my money, I'm actually still going to support it. And I don't think that's what people mean to do, but that's, that's why I think apathy is a huge problem here linked, linked with poverty. Poverty is the, the more physical, global issue, and apathy is more the more mental global issue of it's a problem we don't see a clear solution to and it doesn't really affect us that much and we don't we don't care enough to make day-to-day choices as individuals to solve it right and so to me it's just it's pretty outrageous right that we're still dealing with five-year-old kids dying in a mine in the 21st century that's unacceptable but at the same time it's such a cross-cultural global issue, right? We see it in the US, like with the tobacco farms. They're in the US and they're in Zimbabwe. It seems to be everywhere. Even these norms, these cultural norms of of either it's okay to, to treat children like this, it's okay to have a domestic maid that you don't pay and doesn't get educated, or it's okay to buy this chocolate or buy this product because I don't really care how it was made enough to make, it, make a different decision. So Joseph, you have firms here in Southern California, in Taiwan, in Shanghai, so you have this global perspective, and you also sit on the chair for ala which oversees every law school in the U.S., so you're very much an educator of law students, training them up, mentoring them. So I really want to get your take on this. What would your proposal be to solve child labor and slavery globally, not just here, but globally, given that we have these two seemingly impossible factors to deal with?
1: Well, thank you, Jane, for inviting me to talk about this particular problem. One of these days, hopefully you'll give me a simpler problem to solve. (laughs) Um, This is a global child slavery and with a with a with the predominant forces cultural apathy and global <laughs> poverty so how do we solve that
0: <laughs> yeah sorry about that no
1: no no it's a, it's a very <laughs> pressing problem i can see that so here's my take the first thing i want to mention is that child labor law child slavery and this moral outrage that you feel is very very much 21st century United States Western thinking. It's a very relativistic and evolving area of our moral code as well as our labor law. Let me just put that in perspective for you. You're outraged by child labor, but in many parts of the world, and you know this already, there is no such thing as child labor. It's just labor. Just like there's no African American labor here, or there's no Hispanic labor. We don't categorize it that way. And there's no child labor because it's just labor. It's just service and there's payment. And what I mean by the moral outrage is, and and how it's evolving, is that labor law in itself is a very much evolving sense of what should be compensated and what shouldn't be. For example, right now, it is customary to have a five-day work week, 40 hours. It is commonplace to have a non-compete clause so that you cannot use your labor for a competitor. But I suspect in years down the line that our practice now will be frowned upon. Like, how could we have done that? And what I mean by this issue about child labor being somewhat of a moral relativistic because labor law itself is very much an evolving area of law that constantly changes based on our public policy and our sentiment. Let me give you some examples. Prisoners working for cheap labor, a five-day work week, or a work that is not work remote, without work remote privilege, or signing non-compete clauses. All of these things right now are accepted norms of our society in the United States. But I suspect in years to come, those, all of these things that I mentioned, might be frowned upon might be outrageous how can you force employees to be at the work site and not give them the ability to work at home how can you force prisoners to work how can you do all of these things how can you make employees sign non-compete clauses when they dedicated 10 years of their life for your technology basically you're forcing them to never be able to work again and you forfeit everything that they learned right so all of these key ideas is a area that is constantly evolving and that applies to child labor and that applies to um child slavery. Now, it's easy to attack child slavery as being wrong cuz any form of slavery is wrong, but is child labor wrong and when does child labor cross over to become child slavery worldwide and in the United States? So, the the reason I want to start with this is because I want to give you that perspective that labor law itself is very much evolving, right? The current um, labor law for, for child labor is, is, is penned in like 1930. And so, yes, maybe there's some update that needs to be done. Um, and there has been, but how that applies to the rest of the world and how that applies to our society is still constantly being updated. And the reason why this is so important to know is not because, oh, if it's, you know, relativistic, then there is no right and wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's an evolving area. We are growing as a society. So you cannot compare a first world country with a developing country that is still grappling with a lot of those same issues. But that doesn't mean we can't do better. So, I just want to put that in perspective, so instead of having this moral outrage that we are so terrible now and how can this happen worldwide, is just seeing that it's 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 a growing pain.
0: Wow, that's that's really interesting to bring in the moral relativism because it makes me take a step back. You know, thinking about how our labor practices right now that we don't have an issue with people will likely have an issue with some of them in 50 years, 100 years, and look back and be like, oh, how could they have ever done that? They were being abusive. These were unfair practices. And we just don't see that right now because we're blinded by our circumstance and our own place in history. And it's really interesting then to to then take this issue of child labor and put it in the context of of a past society, in the context of another country that's in a totally different situation than, than we find ourselves in. And how does, how does that factor in, you know, because I still, I still think that this is wrong, but it just infuses a little bit more, it's a call for humility almost when you're approaching it of, of I can still think this is not okay, but I need to have a better understanding that, that people are going to say that to me too. And so how do I then look at, look at this situation with, with an eye to that. Because even with this moral relativism, I'm still not convinced, right? I still think this is wrong. So Joseph, where, where do we go from here?
1: When it comes to child labor laws, let's not talk about forced labor, child slavery, because that's already out the window. That, that violates every moral compass across society, right? but when we're talking about child labor laws, when is it right? When is it okay? When is it wrong? it's going to be a balancing test, at least between two factors. The first one, what is best for the children? And the second, what is the public necessity? Let me kind of spell that out a little bit more. What is best for the child? Is it okay for the child to work as young as five or seven or 12? It's going to be a sliding scale dependent on what that, what each society values at that time and wh- where their place is in their development. Maybe it is very important for children as young as seven to wake up early at 4 a.m. to pick potatoes because in that society, that's what's needed, right? That's, and, and, and it builds character and it helps them have strong work ethic and all sorts of different reasons that each society can come up with. And in our society, right? In, in the U.S., in junior high and high school, we were presented with the option and encouraged to do community service, work at the local library, the Rose Parade, and do different things and volunteer. And a lot of times it is labor. It's making our community better. But why do colleges value that? Why do high schools encourage that? Because it teaches, it helps the children expand and grow outside of the classroom and to to have valuable skills, right? And so at what point, how early you start working, what type of work you do, if you're evaluating that work in the, in the lens, with the lens of what's best for the child, I think that will inform you on whether or not the practice in that country is okay or not. But that's only the first factor. The second factor or the second element is what's the public necessity. So if a country is at war, is it okay for all the citizens of that country, including children, to pick up arms or at least to serve in a nursing and, and uh, capacity? Right? Maybe they can drive. Maybe maybe they can transport. Maybe don't have to fight. But still, it's a war. It's a public necessity. It's a national emergency. Well, then it's easy to say, yes, well, in that case, it's fine to send them into the battlefield and maybe they'll get shot. But when it's not a public necessity, when the country doesn't need this massive amount of labor force to improve their country, and it's the profits are all going to a few sectors in society, well, then there is no public necessity, and maybe it's not okay, right? So I think when evaluating each country and their own labor laws and who they're using for these labor laws, you you need to really examine what their policies are. And you cannot just jump in in a very imperialistic fashion and say, well, we have minimum wage at this level, so therefore all other countries must have that same equivalent standard. I think that is misguided. So what should we do, right? So what should the society do to solve this problem of child slavery, child labor? Mm -hmm. It's one thing for one government to look upon another government, but it's also looking at ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think the U.S. is doing a lot of things right. And I think a lot of countries are are following in its footsteps, but providing the proper incentives. Mm -hmm. So what is the incentive of a poor family sending their children to another rich family to be a slave for financial gain? If the government is able to step in and say we will reward you if your child, if your child, if your children go to school, we'll give you tax incentives. We will provide housing. will we'll, and if they get a certain grade, we'll provide them grants. We'll provide you, your family, with with bonuses of some sort of credits. Then there's a proper incentive. You have to combat incentive with incentive, and it's important because again these children are the future. And maybe the private enterprise don't see it that way. Maybe the individual families have a need because they're starving, but if the government takes care of their own, it's not just a family matter, it's a societal issue and cross border as well. So in the US, right? education, a lot of it is free. But in many other countries, especially in Asia, from where I'm from, education is not free. It's all private. And so that the rich gets richer because they can continuously afford great education. And many of the poor families actually don't get any education. And that robs them of a lot of opportunities and potential. That doesn't mean that the U.S. is perfect. There's a lot of things, of course, we can improve, like all the things I mentioned earlier. But I think the takeaway is that The government is not required to give its people the best. Mm -hmm. Each government is only held responsible to give the people their best, right? Every writer, every thinker, every educator knows that instinctively. I might not be able to give you the best, but I'm obligated to give you my best. Mm -hmm. And each country, each society, in their own timeline of their growth, they have to evaluate what's the best that they can offer their own citizens. Mm -hmm. If a country has... 500 million children and the future, 10 years when they grow up, are they do they have high-tech jobs or is there going to be a lot more farming that's required? What's the education that these children need? And at what age should they start learning that? Each country should evaluate that. And it would be hubris and it would be preposterous and imperialistic for another country to come step in and say, no, your country needs to follow our footsteps and our dreams and match our pace in life. And that would be wrong. I think the solution is to be more hopeful, to be courageous, to be innovative. I mean, why do we have child labors? Is because we don't want to do the, the work or we need more people to do the work. But there's got to be a better way to get the task done than sending children to do it. It reminds me the other day when I saw four people sawing this piece of wood one person on each end holding the block of wood and then two people sawing it with a dull knife. And it took them forever to saw through something that you could simply take to Home Depot and fix within 10 seconds. (laughs) And so if countries are willing to be courageous enough and hopeful enough that their future is going to be better, if they invest in these technology and these methodologies, so to eliminate ch- uh, child labor and to put these children in school, being hopeful that they will be better than your, than you, mm-hmm. that, that these children give them the proper education that the future of this country will be bright. Because if you have a massive amount of child labor, that is almost admitting that the future is not going to be as great as it could be. And so therefore they need to do these labor because they don't have anything to offer anyways. It's almost mm-hmm. being very pessimistic, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that is the solution. And if the leaders of particular countries don't have that inspiration and don't have that courage, maybe that's when the world leaders needs to help step in and say, no, we believe in your children. We will invest we will help them go to school. We will provide their uh, them education. And hopefully when they grow up, because just like the pandemic, a, a problem might come from any part of this world, but so might a solution.
0: That's one thing I really love. And why I love talking with you about all this stuff is because I always so upset. And I always see it with a lot of gray, right? A lot of darkness and, and you come in with this insight and perspective, but it's always so tethered to hope right i think i almost want to i i find myself l- dwelling in all these issues and and how problematic they are and systematic they are and and you see that too but then you always bring it back to to the future and and optimism and i think those things can coexist and, and you show they do the the recognition of the darkness and then pointing people towards a hopeful future and i i wish more people myself included would start to adopt that sort of perspective because i think that would be that'd be the start of something great that'd be the start of of exactly what you're what you're talking about
1: yeah this is something i learned a while ago there's no reason to be afraid of darkness once you see what light can do
0: many thanks to joseph for our conversation today after hours is the podcast by sang associates an international firm dedicated to solving legal problems with creative solutions. If you enjoyed today's episode of After Hour, you will find these conversations and more on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. For information on Sang Associates, go to sangslaw.com. Feel free to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook, as well as to learn more about what we do and hear success stories from Sang Associates. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thank you for joining me for After Hour. I'm Jane Steele.